I want to begin with a hypothetical situation. Any resemblance that this story bears to real life characters is purely coincidental. Here's the hypothetical situation. Let's say, parents, that you decide in a moment of weakness and absent-mindedness that it would be a great idea to take your children hiking. Because that's what we do in Oregon, right? We, we love our nature. We love our rocks and trees and rivers, and we love to be out in them. And so you think, this, this is going to be great. We'll have family time. We'll unplug the children from technology. We'll get out, and we'll make some beautiful memories, right? That's what you think at the beginning of your endeavor. A few weeks ago, actually, my family and I, we took an adventure called the 4T And it's up in Portland, and it stands for Trail, Tram, Trolley, Train, and you get to experience all of those in this kind of circle route around the city. But it begins, you park at the zoo, and you hike four and a half miles straight up. Uh, Actually, there's some some straight down, too, uh, because Portland is by no means flat. Uh, So you hike four and a half miles, and you end up, appropriately enough, at the hospital, at... (laughs) at OHSU, and so that's, that's kind of how this thing goes, um, and, and it, was, it was awesome, but you know, I mean, hypothetically speaking, uh, it's just great, you know, because when you go away, it's hard to get away from it all when you take it all with you, because everybody's got to have a bag, right, and so let's just say, hypothetically, that you have two girls, and uh, the youngest would pack some books and all of her art supplies and some stuffed animals. You, you need some friends for the journey. And then um, maybe the, the other would pack, you know, a change of clothes and matching shoes and uh, a cell phone charger just in case, you know, there was a place to plug into a tree or a rock or something to recharge. And then this is the mom bag. This is the only sensible bag on the whole trip. Now, if you're a mom in this room, you know exactly what's in that bag, right? That bag is hand sanitizer, wipes, first aid kit, right? Sunscreen, fruit snacks, protein bars, all of these things, you know, flashlight, uh, transcripts in case they have to get into college. All the important things (laughs) are in this bag right here. Now, Uh, And then there's the dad bag. The dad bag has a football and a camera and 47 bottles of water, right? Because that's what dad carries. And so you get there and and you you begin by, you know, using the bathroom at the trailhead and then you're glad you had the hand sanitizer. And then you start going out into nature and you're enjoying your time and you're seeing beautiful things as you hike along the trail and it is great family time. And then let's say about, I don't know, eight minutes in, You start to hear things like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I have to go to the bathroom, I accidentally stepped in the creek and now I'm all wet. Are we almost there yet? Right? You've been on this journey. (laughs) And so you're like, oh, all right, come on, keep going, keep going, we can do this. Now, the easiest thing at this point would be to what? Turn around, go back to the car, go through the Dairy Queen drive-thru and go home, right? (laughs) 
That would be the preferred route. Those would be the memories that you'd want to make. But you start by doing things like, okay, listen, I know you're tired, so I'll just grab this for you, and, and I, I'll carry this, and we're just going to keep going. We can make this thing. And then you're like, okay, I know you're really tired, too, and if you do for one child, you do for the other. And so, okay, all right, I'll get this for you, too. And then it's like, oh, I know the little one wants to be carried by mom, so you got to get the mom bag, too. And then your journey looks like this. <laughs> and you're like, these aren't the memories I want to make. Because there's a certain point where you stop and you say, this doesn't look like I thought it was going to look like. This isn't the adventure that I had planned. How come I have to carry all this stuff? And then that thought of, you know what? I don't think we're going to make it. (laughs) Now, that journey can be a lot like your life journey. You know, you can get to this point, and you're like, oh, I have these great plans and adventure and vision. And then at a certain point, you go, you know what? This doesn't look like I thought it was going to look. Why why do I have to carry all this stuff around? Why is everything so heavy? And and I'm not really sure I'm going to make it to the end. And so what do we do in moments like that? How do we continue to walk down the path when we just feel like so many things are against us? We're continuing in our series called Night Vision, Seeing God in the Dark, and we've talked about Job, and we've talked about Jeremiah, and last week Jennifer did a great job of leading us through Esther. And this week we're going to look at one of the great narratives in Scripture. It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph is a great story because Joseph had to walk a path that didn't look like he thought it was going to look like. And he had to carry things that he shouldn't have had to carry. And yet somehow at the end of his journey, he came out of it with his faith intact. He came out of it still leaning on God, still trusting in God. And so how did he do that? And we want to take a look at that story. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. If you want to grab a Bible out of the pew there, it's on page 61. And uh, Genesis is uh, right after the table of contents, conveniently enough. So You can get right there. Now, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2, I just want to grab a piece of this to set the stage for our story. It says, this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old. So the story begins, Joseph is 17. Now, we're going to look at a chunk of his life. If you look at Genesis 41, when he came into the service of Pharaoh, he was 30 years old. So we're going to look at this 13-year chunk of Joseph's life, the, the end of his teen years and all of his 20s. Verse 3 says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. And so already in this story, we see there's this tension. There's this tension in this family and between the brothers and Joseph. And if you look at it from the brother's perspective, I mean, they're like, hey, yeah, your dad's favorite. And, and they're not even making it up. It's true. It says so in Scripture. And how would it feel if you were one of those brothers to know that at best, you would always be second best? That you would always be in line behind the 11th of the 12 sons. Like, how did he get that far in the front? That you would always be vying for your father's affections. And so there was a tension there. And then Joseph began having these dreams. And the first dream he had, that they were out in the wheat field and they were tying up the stalks of grain. And and his stalk stood up 
and 11 of the other ones bowed to his. And so, of course, he told his brothers, you want to hear something great? Here's this dream I had. Well, he has this other dream where it was the sun and the moon and 11 stars, and they all bowed to him as well. And so he went and he told his brothers, this is great. Now, it's not like these dreams need a lot of interpretation, right? It wasn't like Joseph was like, oh, man, I just can't figure these things out. I'm stumped. Sun, moon, 11 stars. Wait, there's 11 of you. Could it be? Right? No, these are pretty self-explanatory dreams. And I'm not any kind of great student of psychology, but I do have two older brothers. And I know if I would have shared dreams like this with my older brothers, they would have dealt with me. Right? They would have hogtied me, which they did a lot when I was a kid. And I deserved every one of them. Right? But Joseph was quick to share these dreams with his brothers, and quite possibly the effects of his father's favoritism was starting to settle into his world. You know, maybe at a certain point, he began to really feel like, hey, I'm better than these guys. And this sense of superiority began to sink into his life, and it shows when he starts kind of sharing these things with mom and dad and all the brothers. Now, one day... The older brothers, they're all out uh, tending the flocks, and so Jacob sends Joseph out to just see how everything's going. Joseph gets to be the one to report back to dad, and as he goes out, he goes to the place where they're supposed to be, and they're not there. There happens to be a stranger there who points him further out into the wilderness to this place called Dothan, or Dothan, and, and he gets out there, and he sees his brothers there. Now, they see him first. They see him coming, and they start talking amongst themselves. And they're like, we, I am sick of him. I'm sick of his dreams. I'm sick of his attitude. I'm sick of his ugly coat. Wears that all the time. Never washes. It's disgusting. I hate it. And they're like, we're going to kill him. We're just done. We are going to kill him. Now, Reuben, Reuben's the oldest brother of all of them. And he says, you know what we need to do instead? We'll just take him. We'll throw him in this cistern, this empty well, and we'll just let him die. That way, we won't have any blood on our hands. We won't have to do anything. Throw him in the well. All done. Now, Reuben said this because in his mind, he was going to come back later, and he was going to rescue Joseph. But in this story, Reuben, then from now on, he's absent. I don't know where he goes. I don't know if he's out at the shawarma stand getting lunch for everybody. I don't know what happens, but he's gone. So the rest of the brothers are around, and they're like, we're going to kill him. We're going to do something. And then all of a sudden, Judah, verse 26, it says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. And then we get to this, which is one of my favorite parts of this story. They say this, after all, he is our brother, right? You're like, what a lovely little bit of compassion at the end of, let's kill him. No, let's sell him to slave traders, right? Well, he is our brother. We could probably make a buck off of him. So they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Now, I want to pause here for a minute. A lot of us know the end of the story. A lot of us know the redemption that happens at the end of the story, but let's, let's live in this for just a minute. Joseph's 17 years old. Chapter 42, when the brothers are recounting this story, they said, he pleaded for his life. He was pleading for his life in this moment as they were selling him to these slave traders. In Psalm 105, it talks about Joseph having shackles around his feet and an iron ring around his neck, and he's marching 
to slavery and from where they were to Egypt is over 300 miles. And can you imagine this journey as Joseph's walking, knowing that every step that he takes is a step further away from his family and everything that he knows? And you gotta know that there was a point, maybe many points along this journey where he was just like, I, what happened? This doesn't look like I thought it was gonna look like. I had dreams. God, you gave me dreams. What's with the dreams? I mean, how many times did he cry out to God for rescue, for release, for deliverance? And what was his answer from God? He just kept marching towards Egypt. At the end of that chapter, we see that he gets sold to Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. If we pick up the story in chapter 39, verse two, it says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. God was with him, and so what he did was good, and and Potiphar saw that, man, Joseph, what he touches is just great, so let's just give him more, and he gave him pretty much everything in the house. You run all of my affairs, I'll eat. Done. And so Joseph did, and it was good. Now, it says that Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him in that way. She began to pursue him. She began to proposition him. And it says in the story that this happened day after day after day after day. As a matter of fact, even at one point, she had all of the servants sent out of the house. And Joseph's there, and she's like, look, nobody else is around. Nobody else will know. Come with me. And when she first does it, Joseph's response is amazing. He says, look, you know, the master trusts me with everything. He doesn't hold anything back except you. You're the wife. How could I do such a wicked thing, he says? It would be a great sin against God. Which is amazing to me. Why does he care? Why does he care if it's a sin against God at this point? He's been sold into slavery. He's hundreds of miles away from everything that he grew up with, and yet somehow in this story, his faith is still intact. And then he comes to this temptation, and what does he do? I mean, think about this temptation for a minute. First of all, it had to be a little bit flattering. You know, it's finally like, okay, somebody wants me. That's kind of cool. And then it became commonplace. It just day after day after day after day as she continued to pursue, pursue, continued to proposition him, it had to just become common to him. And then there's that point where nobody else will know. Nobody else is gonna find out. So Joseph, what are you gonna do in this moment? So she grabs him by his cloak, and what does he do? He runs, he runs away, he runs out of the house. He leaves her standing there with this cloak. And that's where we're like, yes, well done, Joseph. And we applaud his obedience and his boldness, and we know that God is gonna say, Joseph, you did the right thing, now you're free. But that's not how the story works, is it? Joseph makes the right choice. He does the God-honoring thing, and yet she's hanging on to this cloak. And when she gets stood up, she is angry. So she calls all the servants in, and she's like, yeah, you see this? He tried to come in and force himself on me. He's trying to make fun of us. Can you believe the nerve? And then when her husband came home, she told him the the same story, and Joseph got thrown in prison. And that part of the story 
really bugs my sense of justice. I'm like, God, Joseph did the right thing. He obeyed. He took the bold step. He's still following you, even in slavery. And then he gets thrown in prison? And think about Joseph for a minute. What did Joseph's prayer life look like at this time? How often did he cry out to God? How many times did he say, God, rescue me. God, bring relief to this situation. God, I need your deliverance. How many times did he say, God, are you listening to me? I mean, where was God when he was trapped in that cistern? Where was God when Joseph was being marched away in slavery? Where was God when Joseph was falsely accused? Where was God when Joseph was forgotten in prison? And maybe you're asking similar questions. God, how many times have I cried out to you? God, why aren't you listening to me? God, where were you when my marriage fell apart? God, where were you when that thing happened at my job? God, where were you when my children were suffering? God, where were you when the sickness came? God, why aren't you listening? You see, pain and suffering and affliction can take us down the wrong path sometimes. I read an article a few weeks ago by Simon Wheel, and it's called The Love of God and Affliction. And and Simon Wheel is an early 1900s Christian philosopher with a tremendous heart for those going through pain and suffering. And Wheel talks about this path that you're on that has certain stops along the way that, that just take you in the wrong direction. And the first is isolation. The first is that's when the, the walls go up, where, where you say things like, you know, if, if you haven't gone through exactly what I have gone through, then you don't understand me anymore. We don't have enough in common anymore. And so the barriers go up between you and and your friends and your family and other people around you. And after isolation comes this implosion, this kind of totally self-absorbed inward thinking. And all that's left in your world is you and the pain. That's all you notice. All that's left is you and the pain. In Tolkien's book, Lord of the Rings, at one point, the hobbit, Sam, gets to put the one ring on for a brief moment. And when he does, here's how the author describes it. All things around him were not dark, but vague. While he himself was there in a gray and hazy world, alone, like a small, black, solid rock. And that's kind of that implosion, that sense of it's just you. You're the only reality, and everything else around you doesn't have substance anymore. It's just you and the pain. And then further down the path, you come to shame and condemnation. That's that guilt, disgust, self-hatred. This is that stop on the path where you just feel like, okay, what is it that I have done? This is the beginning of you confessing everything you can think of to God, hoping to find that one thing that he's punishing you for. So you just, you're just racking your brain. You're like, okay, God, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything in my whole life. God, I'm sorry for, let's, in sixth grade, I, I pulled that chair out and somebody fell on the floor. Is that it? No, nope, still suffering. Okay, God, seventh grade, I lied. I talked, hoping that God finally is gonna be like, oh, that's it, been waiting for that one. You're done, free to go. You know, we get to that point where we're just like, oh, I I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did all that stuff. God, I'm sorry for this. God, I'm sorry for that. God, I'm sorry for that. 
Further down the path, you come to anger. You just get angry, angry at yourself, angry at other people, angry at the people that let you down, angry at God. God, if you cared for me, I wouldn't be going through this. God, if you love me, you would deliver me from this. Maybe it's just anger at the unfairness of the world or the injustice of the world, but you find yourself in this place of anger. And lastly, Wheel writes in this article that temptation is kind of the last stop. This temptation to continue to fuel your pain by your attitudes and your actions. This idea that you have somehow become comfortable in your discomfort, content in your discontent, and you wear this self-pity around like a badge of honor, and you use your pain and affliction as some type of excuse to justify behaviors and patterns of life that you could in no other circumstances justify. You begin to live into your affliction, and you become a slave to it. You become a slave to your pain. Now, I don't know if you feel like you're on that path somewhere or you feel like maybe you're at that last stop on that path, but it's interesting to me in the story of Joseph that even though he was a slave, it doesn't seem that he's a slave to his suffering. Even though that he was in captivity, his pain did not hold him captive. But let me ask you this, where was God then in Joseph's story? Had God forsaken Joseph? No, no. God was there. He was present. He was working. He was moving. He was in control. He was in all of the little details. You see, God's silence is not his absence. God's silence is not his absence. And in the beginning of chapter 39, when he was in Potiphar's house, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. In the middle of that same chapter, when he was in prison, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Even in his plea for release and for deliverance, even though those went unanswered, God was with him. I mean, what if God would have rescued Joseph the first time he cried out? When he's pleading for his life with his brothers and, and to God when he's in the cistern and God would have just said, poof, here's a ladder. And he'd climb out and his brothers would be like, whoa, that was weird, where'd that come from? How'd you get out here? What would have happened? He would have been walking back into the same scenario, into the same tension, into the same situation that he was living, but God relentlessly said no to Joseph over and over for a period of about 13 years. God relentlessly said no to him in this prayer for deliverance. And I always think, what, what would my response be if I was that? What would my response be if I walked the path that Joseph walked? If every time I did something right, it seemed like something bad happened to me and the door kept getting slammed in my face, would I have given up? I don't know. If Joseph would have given up, all would have been lost. I read a quote from Tim Keller this past week. It says this, very often God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. <laughs> Isn't that great? that we don't see the big picture. We don't have this huge, broad understanding of what's going on. So certain times we ask him for things, but we don't see the, the end from the beginning. 
but God does. And so God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what God knows. Because God knows that there's value. There's purpose in our pain. Our mindset is when something bad happens to us, all right, how can I get around this as fast as possible? What did I do wrong? What can I confess? As soon as I'm around it, I can move on with my life. But the reality is, is that there's probably more to be learned in the dark than there is to be learned in the light. That there are lessons that only come to us through pain and suffering. Listen to this quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. It's a longer one, but stick with me. It says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if there were if it were ever possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This professor's looking back at his life at age 75 and saying, everywhere that I've grown, it's been through affliction. Everywhere that I see some major positive change in my life, it has come through suffering. And if you could ever find a way to eliminate pain from life, it'd be too boring to live. And I look at that and I go, well, I don't know, I'd like to try. <laughs> like, like, God, I'll be that one, all right? I'll live the pain-free life and uh, I'll blog about it so other people know. And then at the end of my life, you know, I'll look back and let everybody know if it was worth it or not. You can trust me with that, God. But it doesn't work out that way, right? We don't get to live pain-free lives. It says that in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says there's wonderful joy ahead, but for now, we have to endure trials. It was that way for Joseph. Joseph had to walk through trials. It says in Psalm 105 that the Lord was testing Joseph's character through that. God was testing Joseph, and somehow, in the midst of all of this, Joseph was continuing to walk with his faith intact. And we know that because we see that somewhere around year 11 of his captivity, Joseph, he wakes up, he's in prison, there's... There's two guys there that were sent there by Pharaoh, Pharaoh's baker and his cup bearer. And they both had dreams. And they said, Joseph, what does this mean? And he said, only God knows. Only God can do this. Somewhere in his 11th year, he's still saying, that's up to God. God's still the one. God's still the one in charge. And so he interprets both of their dreams. It's bad news for the baker. He's about to lose his life. It's good news for the cupbearer. He's about to be restored to his position. And before the, the cupbearer leaves, Joseph's like, hey, don't forget me. And this guy's like, no way. How could I forget you? You're my man. There's no way. And then he gets restored and promptly forgets Joseph. And Joseph stays in prison for two more years. And then somewhere in year 13 of his captivity, he wakes up and Pharaoh's had a dream. And Pharaoh's telling people his dreams and nobody can interpret them. And, and the cupbearer, the light bulb goes off. Oh, yeah. There's that guy in prison. He interpreted my dream correctly. We should get him. And of course, Pharaoh calls Joseph and Joseph says the same thing. You know what? Only God can do this. It's not me. It's God. And he interprets the dream correctly so much so that Pharaoh sees this unbelievable wisdom in him and puts him in charge 
of pretty much everything in the country. That he gets out of that at that point. But I'm blown away that in year 13, when it's totally not looked like it was supposed to look like, when he is in prison, he still wakes up and he's still leaning on God. He's still trusting God. He still has an understanding that God is in control. And so what do we learn from that? Three quick things about the life of Joseph that we can apply to our own lives. First, he had a true perspective of God. He had a true perspective of God. Perspective is oftentimes hard to come by. Perspective usually comes at the end of the story, and we always live right in the middle of our stories. And so it's difficult to have perspective. But as you look at Joseph, you see several different places where he just says, yeah, this is, this is why these things happened, and this is who God is. In chapter 45, he has a long section, but in chapter 50, it says this, Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You intended this for bad, but God knew that it was going to work out good. And God brought me along through all of these situations. He knew about the character of God. He had a true and proper perspective of who God was. And so my question is, do we? What do we know about the character of God? And are those things foundational in our lives? Do we know that God is sovereign? Do we believe that God loves us with an everlasting love? Do we understand that he is faithful even when we are not faithful? Do we trust that he is trustworthy? And are those the things that we stand on? It says in Romans 8, 18, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in us later. Right? What we suffer now is nothing compared to what's to come. And that word compared there is, it literally is an accounting term, and it means to place things on a ledger. And so if you look here, this is the ledger. It literally means to take our sufferings. Go ahead, put them out. One, two, three. I don't know how long your list would go. The things that you are walking through, but on the right side of that ledger, you say, okay, God, who are you? What is your character? What do I know to be true about you? What things are to come in my own world? And those things will be greater than these things. Now, it's not saying that that we don't have this suffering. We don't have this pain. It's not saying that we look away from that. That's false peace. False peace is, is just like, okay, go to my happy place. Go to my happy place. There's nothing wrong in my world. I'll just eat some ice cream and cookies. It's going to be good. No suffering. That's false peace, right? Trying to ignore those things. But real peace is saying, okay, I can look at that ledger. I can look at all of those things on that left side and understand that, yeah, those are rough. But I can also look at the right side of that ledger and say, this is who God is. And these are the things that I am standing on. You see, what Joseph knew was that God was in control. God is sovereign, and God was in all of the details. You see, God's love and his presence are completely compatible with the terrible things that we have to walk through. God's presence, his love, it's compatible with that rough stuff that we have to go through. It's not like because one exists, the other can't exist. And so we can rejoice knowing we have a solid foundation. The first recorded sermon that we have of the great evangelist, Jonathan Edwards, was about how Christians can rejoice through pain. And he had three points to it, and they're great. First is this. 
God takes our bad things and he makes them good. Second thing is, our good things can't be taken away from us. And the third thing is, is that the greatest things are yet to come. That we will see God's face. Is that the true perspective we have of God? Second thing about Joseph is that he honored the principles of God. At any point, Joseph could have turned and walked away. Year two, year five, year 10, year 11, whatever, all of that that he walked through, he could have turned and just walked away from God, right? When he stood before Potiphar's wife, he could have just been like, oh, I'm hundreds of miles from anything. God hasn't answered my prayer for deliverance, and so whatever. But he continued to honor the principles of God. You see, oftentimes we have a mindset that, okay, I will behave in such a way, and then when I behave this way, then God has to make things easy for me. As if somehow we can manipulate or force the hand of God. And then we behave correctly, you know, we, we run away from temptation, and then when bad things happen, we say, well, is my behavior even worth it? Because my behavior doesn't seem to be affecting whether or not my life is good or bad. And so when we think, oh, well, if my behavior is not working, then we start choosing things that seem reasonable over things that are righteous. Because we're like, oh, it just doesn't work for me. Well, it's not supposed to work for you that way. We don't surrender to Jesus for what he can do for us to make our lives easier. We surrender to Jesus because of what he's done for us to rescue us. And then we obey his commands to show our love for him. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Third thing we see about Joseph is he continued to praise God. Not once do we see Joseph cursing God. We don't see him tearing down the name of God. We don't see him walking away. We just see him continue to give praise and honor to God. It happened with his dreams. It happened in the way that he named his children. His second child was God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. Awkward name, but you get the point across, right? He's still relying upon God. He's continuing to worship God. And we know that worship is just broad. There's so many aspects of worship. Romans 12 tells us that we offer our bodies, all of us, as living sacrifices. That's our spiritual worship. But for just a minute, I wanna talk about singing because oftentimes our praise takes the form of song. And we know that. We know lyrics are powerful. That's why you remember songs from the 80s. And you're like, why is that in my head? I can't believe that. Because... We know lyrics. I was driving in the car with my oldest daughter a few weeks back, and she was flipping through all the stations, and she just knew every song. Every time she hit seek, she could sing that song. And she got to a certain song she didn't know, and she looked at me, and she goes, Dad, do you know this song? And I was like, no, I don't know it. Should I? She goes, yeah, you should. It's the oldie station. <laughs> I was like, get out of the car. Right? But she knew, she knew the song. She knew all of the songs. I just finished a book called The Insanity of God, and it's a husband and wife team that went to over 60 different countries for 15 plus years, interviewing the persecuted church. And it was just their goal to find out what, what are some of the threads, what are some of the common things that allow God's people to flourish in places of persecution? How do people come through that with their faith intact? And they said the one common thread through all of the stories that they heard was praise, was, was songs of faith. It's Paul and Silas in prison. 
It's this idea of just continuing to praise God no matter what. See, you will not always understand God. If God were small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshiped. We're not gonna understand it, but we continue to give him praise. And so I don't know what it is that you're carrying. I don't know what burdens you're walking through. I probably know that life doesn't look like you thought it was gonna look like. But know that God is present and that God is in control and that he is trustworthy. And he's taken all of this, like it says in Ephesians 1, he makes everything work out according to his plan. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this story the story of Joseph and for his perseverance. I thank you that we get to look at that and be encouraged by that. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to continue to follow hard after you. Give us a clearer picture of who you are. Continue to allow us to honor your principles and give you praise. And Jesus, again, we thank you that you carried what you shouldn't have had to carry, that you suffered more than we'll ever know so that we could spend forever with you. And so we love you. We thank you. In your name, Jesus, amen.